and for the reading of God's word. We're in Romans chapter 8, or chapter 9, excuse me, we're starting in chapter 9 today, looking at the edge of grace and how God is at work, and we're about to do, we're doing now a major turn in the book of, uh, of Romans, where Paul starts to get into the, the dirty details of what it means to be saved by grace in justification and sanctification, moving towards glorification. Hear the reading of God's word from Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the inspired and inerrant word of the Lord lasts forever. You may be seated. On January 12, 1997, National Geographic uh, reported that two Swiss men, let me get these names right, Bertrand Picard and Wim Verstreifen, set out to be the first to circle the entire Earth in a balloon. The aircraft uh, that was made was a high-tech masterpiece complete with solar panels and an airtight capsule for pressurized flight at very high altitudes. At that time, it cost $1.5 million to build. With great excitement and anticipation, the pilots took off. However, shortly after liftoff, the pilots smelled kerosene inside the sealed cabin. They contacted their control center with a situation and were told uh, to... uh, Uh, open the capsule to air it out until they arrived in Algeria where they might land in an emergency landing. However, the fumes proved to be far too much for them, and the pilots were forced to ditch the million-dollar balloon into the Mediterranean Sea. You know what the cause of the leak was for the kerosene? A clamp. It cost a dollar and sixteen cents, the kind like you'd see and buy at AutoZone and put on a radiator pipe. These men had a great mission and plan and desire, but a little clamp undermined everything in their mission. In short, sometimes it doesn't take much to undermine a great mission. Today in Romans 9, 
the Apostle Paul addresses a real problem uh, that is really a loose clamp in what we do in our mission and in our life together as Christians. And that is particularly a loose clamp on our souls that affects how we reach out even to other souls. And that's because in Romans 8, in the chapter before this, Romans 9, Paul has told us some amazing things about our assurance. The loose clamp that we carry around in our lives as Christians too often is our assurance. In Romans 8, he tried to bombard us with magnificent truths of assurance toward us. He tells us we are no longer condemned before God through the work of Christ. Paul tells us that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to actually live for God, to serve Him obeying His law in real ways. He told us that we are children of God who can pray our way through hardship, seeking Him in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us, above all things, at the very end of chapter 8, that God is for us and nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God. Everything in chapter 8, especially this passionate, furious love of God towards us in Christ, is meant to assure us and is meant to clamp down a sense of God's love in our lives. But here's the thing. When God's word tells us God loves you more than we can imagine, that clamp gets loose pretty quickly in our own time. It slips in our hearts. And guys, that's what the Romans struggled with in the first century. They struggled because God was saying, I mean, Paul was saying, God loves you, Romans. But the Romans knew the Bible. And they looked at the Old Testament and they said, okay, God loves us, but, and you say his love will never change. But what about the Jews? What about the Jews in the Old Testament? God told them that they were loved. God told them that he would do great things for them. Indeed, he did do great things for them. And yet, here we are in the first century, and they're not loving God, and it doesn't seem like God loves them because they're rejecting Christ. We look at them as a people who don't look like God is loving them right now. That's what the Romans were saying in their time. And so, the the, the Romans were thinking, well, if God really doesn't change in his love, what do we do about the Jews, for example? And this ties to our big question for the day that's out of this text. What is God's take on the Jews? And what's that got to do with us taking the gospel to the lost in our lives, even among the Jews? Well, Paul's looming question of assurance and how that affects us in the Jews' lives as well as our own mission Uh, really shows up here in the first verses. He shifts the entire conversation in chapter 9 through 11 to the Jews. And we're going to dive in more and more talking about the Jews over the next few weeks. But he does 
Paul, in this case, reveals something about himself in a very personal, passionate way about how he saw the Jews, which I would suggest is how God sees the Jews. Look at verse 1 of our text. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart relative to the Jews, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, that is, the Jews. Now look at how Paul immediately personalizes this, this problem of assurance that the Romans uh, were struggling with. And he doesn't say, oh yeah, when it comes to the Jews, they were jerks. I mean, they rejected Jesus They get what they deserve. They treated Jesus badly. Hey, man, they arranged his crucifixion in conjunction with the Romans as well, the Gentiles, but they did it. You know what's amazing is Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for them. In other words, when Paul thinks of the lost Jews, of his people, He laments, he mourns, he aches for them. In fact, the depth of feeling he talks about comes out of prayer. You know how I know that? This language of unceasing shows up in the New Testament in Paul, and it's always an allusion to prayer. Paul, in other words, is saying in this year of gathering, when we think of the lost, we're not to think of them with contempt, but with a hurt for them. Now, you know what's amazing about this, that Paul would say, I hurt for my people, is that Paul wrote this letter about 57 A.D. That's after he had done not one, not two, but three missionary trips all around the Roman Empire. And it was Paul's habit, when he would go on a missionary trip to share the gospel in places in hopes of planting churches. And so the first place he would go to in every city, almost every example in the book of Acts, was a synagogue. He would preach to the Jews first, telling them about the Messiah who had come. And after he showed up in the city and would tell these these Jews in the synagogue about this, almost every time the Jews would yell at him, They would smear his reputation in the community. They would verbally abuse and falsely accuse him. And in some cases, they would beat him to a pulp, even throw stones at him. And here's what Paul is saying at this point. I hurt for these people. Let me ask you, if somebody treated you like this, how would you feel about them? You'd be pretty ticked, wouldn't you? You'd say, talk to the hand, stay away from me. I don't want to talk to you people. But Paul is coming out with this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for them. He is effectively saying, I still care for them. Huh? Is Paul in some kind of weird codependent relationship with the Jews where he'll say, abuse me, please abuse me? No. What Paul is saying is love. Love that comes straight from Jesus Christ. You remember in Luke 19, Jesus is 
in, has gone in and out of Jerusalem right before his death. And as he tries to enter Jerusalem at one point, he weeps for Jerusalem. The very people who uh, had been abusing him and questioning him and challenging his authority, he weeps for them and lament. You see, the issue here is that the love of God is radically different than anything we're used to. We are used to loving people we like, people who make our lives easier. But Jesus' love is different. It's divine. It's the love that goes beyond what's my good to what's good for them, even if it costs me something. Paul hurt for the lost Jews because Christ hurt for the lost Jews. Now, at this point, you got to think, all of us, given the way we interact with people who don't like us and we don't like them, you got to think the Romans are thinking, this man's nuts. What is he thinking? In fact, Paul anticipates the skeptics saying, yeah, right, you really weep for him. Uh-huh, yeah, sure. And so in verse 1, he says these things to certify as a vow before God. He says, uh, basically, uh, he says, I am telling the truth. In other words, in Christ, I say before God, this is how I see my kinsmen who abuse me sometimes. And before Christ, in his name, I am not exaggerating, is what he's saying. I'm serious. I weep for the same Jews that pummel me, pummel me and verbally and physically abuse me with oppression, but who I'm called to share the gospel with. What can we learn from Paul? In this text, even in these first verses, especially when it comes to the love of God and mission for God's kingdom here in our year of gathering in 2014. This is what love looks like. It looks like this. When you're reaching out to the lost like Jesus and like Paul, you might be angry at first. At the sin you see, even the pushback you receive. But after prayer... You cannot stay there. Your anger turns to tears for the lost. I think this is a major issue for us. A major issue in how we do mission, as too often we want to stay at anger regarding the world and its brokenness. You know what? God loves us so much that he sometimes will bring even more brokenness into our lives just to tame our hearts. Tony Campolo tells a story about a pastor, a pastor friend named Walter, who ministered to a guy named Arthur Forbes in his church. Arthur Forbes was the antithesis of engaging and cool. Imagine this, teenagers. You long for the cool. Like David was alluding to earlier, he was an older man who had... Uh, who had terrible personal care. He had old clothes, dandruff on his shoulders. He was, his hair was shaggy and uncombed. And he smelled bad. Make it even worse, he was cranky. The hard part for Pastor Walter and the church was that Arthur would come to church each week and nobody really wanted to be around him. 
And so what Arthur did is break the golden rule of church. He sat in a different part of the church every week. It drove the church members and Walter, I mean, and well, Pastor Walter crazy. Over a couple of weeks, Arthur Forbes missed church. And for Pastor Walter, as well as the people, it was kind of a relief, a kind of blessed subtraction. We don't have to worry about that guy. Until one day, Walt, Arthur Forbes called Walter. And we get this as pastors sometimes. Hey, do you do house calls? I need you to come see me. I've been sick, what Arthur said. And Pastor Walter reluctantly said, yes, I'll, I'll be over there. And he showed up at the house, and, and the place was a mess on the outside. It was a disaster. And his yard had been mowed. He hadn't cut the bushes. It looked like a wreck. He went inside. It was even worse. It was dark, dank. It smelled like urine. The place was just terrible. But Walter spent time praying for and with Arthur Forbes. One time, Walter went back to the house. And when he got there, he opened the door. And there was Arthur Forbes laying naked. It was a disgusting sight. And Arthur said, I'm hot. Come pray for me. So he prayed for him. And in due time, Walter showed up at the house and he found Arthur Forbes dead. He looked terrible. He smelled bad. It was the end of his life, an ignominious end. So Walter called the people to come pick up uh, Arthur's body. But before they did, Walter took time to clean Arthur Forbes up. To clean him up, to shave him a little, to get him ready for a funeral. That night, Walter went home. And as he prayed over his experience with Arthur Forbes, this difficult hard man. You know what he did? He cried. And he cried because as Tony Campolo said, Walter realized, I love Arthur Forbes. I love him. How can that be? The man is disgusting. But I love him. This is what the love of God is like. For you and for me, for we in our sin are Arthur Forbes. And they who are on the outside of the church are Arthur Forbes. This is the passion of Christ for you and for me. And when it comes to reaching out, you and I are going to deal with difficult people. We'll get pushback. But in real Christ-like love, your anger will turn to tears for the lost. You will move from condemnation and judgmentalism to compassion, to love. I have to ask, how can you love prickly people who are demanding and even judgmental at times. Well, it's only through Christ and His mind-boggling love 
that changes us. How can Paul explain how he reached out to the Arthur Forbes of his time, except a very polished version of it, in the Jews? We'll look at verse 3 of our text. Paul says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. (laughs) To what extent was Paul willing to love Difficult people who abused him and were difficult with him. Paul here in our verse 3 does something mind-boggling. He gives this hypothetical example that if it were possible, he'd be willing to be accursed and cut off from Christ so that his own people could come to Christ and be saved. In other words, if it were possible for him to lose his salvation, which it isn't, he would go to hell so they could go to heaven. This is shocking. I mean, how many of us would say, I'm giving up my free ticket to heaven so you can go to heaven in my place, even though you're a mean person? Of course, as Paul, of course in all this, Paul is reminding us that you can't lose your salvation. But there is a principle at work in what true love in mission looks like It's substitution. Substitution. Paul is willing to endure hell so that the lost could go to heaven. This is what the love of Christ will do for you and for me. If we experience Christ's love in our salvation and really go to that mighty power of the cross like we sang about, it will cause us to be willing to give up something for the good of another Sacrifice, when you do mission, is necessary. We're going to talk more about this in the future. But you'd be willing to sacrifice things like comfort, popularity, things like respectability, all of which are incredibly important to us. I mean, let's be honest. We care way too much about what people think, and we fear them in what they think. But if you have spent much time... Thinking on what does God think of me today by loving me. He loves me right now. And you dwell on that very regularly. You will be willing to give up what seems like culturally the most important thing around so that others might live. Now here's an important question. Who are the others that we're talking about? We've been mentioning their names in our text Paul is getting at these others in the text. And he's clearly talking about the Jews, his people, his ethnic family. But don't miss the pronouns in this text, all right? He speaks of me and my, but he also speaks of they, them, their. These get to the three key objects and reference points of the church's mission. Three points of reference, and here they are. This is what we try to promote here at Redeemer. There's Jesus and me, Jesus and us, and Jesus and them. All three are important, equally important in value. But you and I have a serious problem in American religion with just focusing on one of them. Guess which one it is? Jesus and me. We have a consumer mentality very often that says, what's in it for me first? 
with Jesus. But Paul is modeling something that is profound here. He has in his maturity in Christ, own the Jesus in me, own the Jesus in us of church, to Jesus and them as his first question. What's in it for them in the gospel? My question for us today is, where is Redeemer in this? Where do we start? Jesus and me? Jesus and us? Or Jesus and them? I suggest real maturity is slowly you turn from Jesus and me, and you get to Jesus and them first in your question. That's what real maturity looks like in Christ. And the more we pray, the more we're going to find there are people who are very different than us that need Christ. And we are called to change our ways for them in mission. Again, more to come on this. But that brings us to the question of why Paul would have a passion for the Jews. Look at this. They are Israelites in verse 4. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Paul is saying the Jews have quite a history with God. And they are due honor because they carried the faith uh, for many years in believing uh, that God is the one true God and, and will save through his coming Messiah. But something you need to pay attention to is that these Jews have quite a background with God. They get their name Israelites from Jacob. Remember, he wrestled with God in Genesis 32. And, and Israelite, Israel means wrestles with God. They got their name from him. They got their background even further back from Abraham, Isaac, and even then Jacob. They have quite the pedigree when it comes to spiritual men who trusted in the Messiah, the one true God alone. Not only that, according to our text, there are some parallelisms here that's pretty interesting. They were adopted by God at the Exodus out of Egypt, and they were given the law out of Sinai. They experienced the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God in their place with them. In the, and remember the cloud and the pillar of fire? How the Holy Spirit would show up in worship sometimes? And they are the ones who learned first how to truly worship God on His terms, not man's terms. And they received the covenants from Abraham, from Moses, from David. Covenants that said binding relationships bound in blood Regarding the relationship that God had with his people. And they were given promises. Promises of a coming Messiah. A coming salvation for them personally and for the entire world. And a future inheritance. They were given those promises. Why did God choose Israel, the people, as a nation? We're going to talk more about this as time comes, but if you go to Deuteronomy 7, 10, 14, you'll find this profound thing where God just says it very plainly. I did not choose you because you're particularly special, Israel. You aren't even in with me because of your ethnicity. I chose you because of me. Because I love you out of my grace. That's what it says 
in the book of Deuteronomy. And of course, all that God chose to happen and all these things that Paul lists as the resume of Israel come to fruition in the one Christ. Jesus, the ultimate Jew, Israel showing up personally, the suffering servant who comes as a man, as a Jew, but also as God and Lord over all. The Jews, in other words, had the honor of having the son born among them. And again, this is quite the spiritual resume as a background. You can say, well, we come from Abraham. We come from Isaac, Jacob. We have all these things in our history. These belong to us, is what they might say. And you can hear a little bit of this in Paul in Philippians 3 when he articulates his resume. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was perfect according to the law. But the sad part of the story is with the whole resume and background and thousands of years of history with with God in the wilderness, among other places, God doing amazing things for them. The Jews were hard. The Jews were hard. They did not respect or receive Christ when he came. And folks, Jesus came to them and to us. As the ultimate substitution. Remember that theme? Paul's willing to give up his very life and go to hell. Well, guess what? He couldn't do it, but the Christ did. He did for them on the cross. Remember, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He went to hell. He took on the penalty for our sins on himself on the cross and was cursed being hung on a tree. And his own did not love him. His own did not receive him. You know why they didn't receive him? Because as 1 Corinthians 1 and the gospel show, he was a threat. He was a threat. He wasn't the shiny hero who rose to power and fame the way that we of the world expect. He suffered and he died a horrendous death. He wasn't victorious as the world describes victory. He wasn't successful, as the world defines success. He was, as Galatians 3 says, cursed. He went to hell for you and for me, so we could be forgiven, so even the Jews could be forgiven. Guys, the reason I bring this up about how the Jews treat him is that we are in the same boat in our culture. We want a shiny hero. We want that guy who we could admire, who looks good, sounds good, says all the right things. And you know why I know that is endemic to our culture? Because when a hero arises from politics, from music, from a host of other places, and yet when they fail in a public way, we crucify them. We may not do it literally, but we do it with their reputations because that's what we want. We want our pastors to be shiny, happy people. We want our leaders and CEOs to be extraordinarily wise and running business. And when they make mistakes, we crush them. The same is true because this is in our hearts when it comes to Christ. When he dies... 
it doesn't make sense to us. In other words, we don't bank on a Savior who loves like this. We don't bank on a Lord who bleeds for his enemies. The fact of the matter is that we have to come to grips with our desperate need for grace. Our desperate need for the love of God. We are spiritually dirty. We are Arthur Forbes. Even with our contempt for the lordship of God himself. But you know what's beautiful about that? Christ dies for the contempt. Christ dies for the Jews. Christ dies for the self-righteous. What's that got to do with us? What's that got to do with how we live today? Well, this is the beautiful truth that comes out of Luke 15. The parable of the prodigal son. Lad read it earlier. Remember, there were two sons. That the father had. The first is the most famous. The prodigal. Who makes his name known throughout our culture. People quote him all the time. But the one that's forgotten is in the background. The second part of the parable. The older brother. The older son. And what we realize in the text. As Lab was reading it. Is that the father. Not only had to reach out. And be a part of the salvation. And reception and justification. Of the prodigal son. Who blew the wad of the family. But he also reached out to the self-righteous older brother. You know how I know he was self-righteous? Because he, when he heard about the party that was going on for his brother to return home, he stayed outside. He didn't want to go in. He complained to his own father and said, this son of yours, not my brother, he's out of my life. He blew the wad. And you don't even give me, Father, a a party for my friends. And I serve you every day and I never disobey you, is what he said. It's kind of ugly if you hear it that way, isn't it? But that's because that's where many of our hearts are as older brother types. Like the Jews. Many of us today walk around with the older brother thing going on in our souls condemning those people who don't have their act together when we refuse to see that we, in our uh, piety, are actually Arthur Forbes. You know why I can say this? Because I might be the chief older brother in this congregation. Really. Let me give you an example. When it comes to homosexuality, someone in my family sometime back came out of the closet and admitted that they were homosexual. You know, my first response was, it wasn't tears like Paul talks about here. It was rage. Rage. But then God called my heart for this person. And then I started to pay attention to the culture wars around homosexuality. And there were people who were hating on the homosexuals. So you know how I responded to them? You haters. I got even self-righteous about the self-righteous. And I was convicted deeply. (laughs) 
that that is the most dangerous kind of self-righteousness of all, thinking that I've got it over even others who are older brothers. You and I live in a culture that desperately needs the gospel to go out to individuals, communities, families who are dying in their sin. And instead of being (laughs) self-righteous, Christ calls us to give up and follow him and share the gospel with people because we are fellow sinners with them who've been saved by grace. There but the grace of God go I is the heart of the Apostle Paul. Today, I have several questions for you about our challenge not to be older brothers in our condemnation of people, even each other. And here is the challenge to believe. Jesus loves you. He loves me. And he loves me and you so much he'll interrupt our self-righteousness, just like he interrupted Paul on a regular basis, to show us what real love looks like. And you know what's hard about that is the self-righteous who trust in their religious past and resume are the ones like me who have the hardest time believing God loves us. We really do. But Jesus is passionate about you. And he so wants to change you like he changed Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, that we could be lovers of other people. Here are my questions to you today. If you're listening today, I would ask you, are you an older brother? Are you an older brother who needs Christ for the first time? It is easy to stay in our kind of moralistic world here in the uh, Bible Belt, the conservative South, and miss the forest for the trees that we desperately need Christ even as older brothers. Bow to Christ. Get rid of the halo that is wound too tight around your head. And realize Jesus is in, deeply in love with you. Second, Paul loved his people, the Jews, even when they gave him a hard time. Who are your people? Who is your family, your coworkers, your team at school? Are you willing to love your enemies so they can hear the good news? Third, are you praying for them? Paul, with this language of unceasing, that's prayer. If you want to soften your heart towards somebody you're really ticked off at, pray for them. Pray for them. Are you willing to proclaim your love for Christ and his love for you to them, your people? If not, why? Be honest. Be honest for Jesus. I'm afraid of them and what they think of me. I'm angry with them and the way they live. Help me, Jesus. Save me. Even from my own self-righteousness. Have mercy. The fifth and the key question I have for you is, have you been burned by the love of God? Now, I don't mean burn in a bad sense. I mean burn in a good sense. When I was a kid, I had this leather kit where I would take this little uh, soldering iron and I would burn numbers and letters into the leather. 
Have you been burned by the love of Christ in such a way that his name, Christ, is pasted on your heart? Have you so experienced that love that your life is changed and you want to give your life away? That's what Paul's talking about here. He has this passion because he was loved first by Christ. And that's the key. That's the key to any mission with anybody outside the church, even loving people within the church. Dare I say loving ourselves is you must first taste the love of Christ. First. Realizing that you don't deserve it. But he offers it freely because he is way more passionate about you and about us and about them than you and I could ever dream. The more I see my sin, the lower I have to go. But the lower I go, the more I love. I call us to going low, to receiving the love of Christ. And like Paul starting to weep for the lost who don't know him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we admit that uh, this kind of loving business is hard. It does not come naturally. This is a strange text for us. It just seems so weird to think of giving up our very salvation so others would come to know you. But we ask you to bring us to this place over time by revealing your love to us individually, in our families, and in our hearts, Lord, as we even dare to talk with those who don't know you. We pray that we would taste love beyond our wildest hopes and dreams, love infinite, love in the Christ who gave himself for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.